Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Throughout history, we've seen innovations that were expected to change the world. But for every steam engine, color television, and Google search, our past is littered with promising but unsuccessful ideas and inventions. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we take a look at three innovations that had their moment, but were ultimately unsuccessful. What's their impact on our culture today? Later in the show, we'll hear about an idealized universal language called Esperanto and why it never came to be, and how the music platform Napster upended the record industry. But first, a look at how we treat mental illness in this country. Throughout history, the medical community has experimented with inhumane treatments, but few procedures are as notable and distressing as the lobotomy. Lobotomies were performed on over 50,000 Americans in the 20th century, and they didn't fall out of favor until the 1950s. Andrew Skoll joins us now to talk about that history and what it tells us about psychiatry today. He's Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Science Studies at the University of California, San Diego. Andrew is author of the upcoming book, Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness. And just a note for our listeners, this interview contains language and imagery that may be disturbing. Andrew, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. You know, we are starting to talk more about mental illness, not just in the U.S., but really across the world. But this topic isn't new for you because so much of your life's work has focused on our rather checkered history with treating mental illness. And one of the treatments that has been most controversial in that regard has been the lobotomy. Share with our listeners how lobotomies were first conceived in the scientific community. There are some complicated stories about the origins of lobotomy. Lobotomy was uh, first tried by a Portuguese neurologist named Angus Moniz in 1935. It involved early on drilling holes in the skull and the very first time injecting alcohol into the brain to kill cells off. Subsequently, he began to take cores of tissue out using something that resembled a butter knife. And his early reports of that work were encountered by a young American neurologist, Walter Freeman, who taught in Washington, D.C., and who had as a colleague a young neurosurgeon named Jim Watts. And they performed the first lobotomy on a woman named Alice Hammett in uh, 1936, uh, describing her as a woman who led her husband a dog's life. Alice was one of about 20 cases they did in the next few months. And they reported these cases at a, a meeting of psychiatrists in Baltimore and were met with furious reactions, but also with crucial support from some of the leading figures in the field. So I want our listeners to hone in on that timeline that you just mentioned. The first lobotomy happened in 1935. And then just a year later, 
You have Walter Freeman, who, as you said, wasn't the first, but really became synonymous with this practice. That is a very short period of time to adopt what is such an invasive and controversial procedure. Why did it move to the U.S. and across Europe so quickly as a procedure? Freeman had actually been at a meeting of medical professionals in London in 1935. That was a meeting attended by Moniz. They happened to be next door to one another at the meeting and struck up a conversation. So Freeman and Moniz were in early conversation, and Freeman was a very ambitious man and impatient of the slow progress of treating mental illness and seized on lobotomy as a way forward uh, and was very good at publicity for himself. He practically wrote journalists' piece of, pieces about lobotomy, and it very quickly was announced as a way of curing sick souls. And, and medical journalists was, were extraordinarily, uh, how can I put it, naive about these things. They didn't question what they were told. So that was, that, that was something. I, I mentioned Freeman's impatience. The early operations uh, were done very often under local anesthetic. So the patient was fully awake, the, the skull was anesthetized and holes drilled into the, into the bone uh, so that they could access the brain. And the reason for keeping them conscious was that by trial and error, Freeman and Watts had decided that the way to discern when you should stop slicing into the brain was when the person became confused. And so they recorded these conversations and I reprint one of them in, in my book, Desperate Remedies, which is really quite shocking. And you, you see the patient saying, stop, stop, and them continuing. One time a patient was um, asked as part of this conversation, what's going through your mind at the moment, John? And there was a pause and he said, a knife. Ow. You know, the listeners can't see the look on my face, but it is equal parts of being horrified and also fascinated because Freeman not only was promoting lobotomy, but as you said, he was creating new procedures that he thought would allow him to have accuracy, but avoid the need for having a surgeon. Why did Freeman think that his new approach, you know, what's called the ice pick approach, why did he think that was a better approach? Well, the problem with doing lobotomies in the conventional fashion where you involved a neurosurgeon was those operations took a couple of hours. And there were very few neurosurgeons around in that era. Freeman was saw a, a situation where America had half a million patients, mental patients in hospitals on any given moment. And a handful of neurosurgeons taking two, three hours was not going to cut it in terms of getting the, the operations done on mass. And he was convinced this was the solution to, to mental troubles. So he came across a technique that an Italian physician had developed during the war and borrowed it. And as you say, used an ice pick and using an ice pick was pretty easy for Freeman. He would give a patient to electric shocks to ECT in swift order. That rendered the patient unconscious. 
he would then peel back the eyelid. I'm sorry, this is going to get very gross. Insert the ice pick into the bone around the eye, which is rather thin. Have a hammer, break through the orbital plate, break through the bone, wiggle the ice pick about, and then repeat the procedure on the other side. And then he put sunglasses on the patient who by now had terrible black eyes and they were free to go home. And Freeman barnstormed the country in in the late 1940s and early 50s, trying to teach this technique. He claimed he could teach any damn fool to perform one of these lobotomies in about 20 minutes, even a psychiatrist, because Freeman held psychiatrists in very low regard. And so he had a, a sort of camper van lobotomobile, as he called it. And he went from state hospital to state hospital, mental hospital to mental hospital, demonstrating these techniques, sometimes doing as many as 20 or 25 lobotomies in the space of an afternoon. It it sounds horrifying. It sounds unconscionable and unimaginable. And yet, as you said, by 1951, this practice was continuing. And by that point, over 20,000 lobotomies had been performed. So I have to ask the obvious question. With all of the skepticism that scientists had about lobotomies, the horrific procedures that were used, were these practices effective at all? They changed people's minds, often in very dreadful ways. What they did was tend to remove inhibitions, remove the ability to concentrate long-term, they pacified many, but not all of the patients, some of them became violent. They didn't universally produce human vegetables. When we think about the brain, which is an, an enormously complicated organ, one analogy would be to think about when people have strokes. When people have strokes and bleeding in the brain, they lose a portion of their, their brain. And the outcomes vary dramatically. If it's in the wrong place, you just die. But other times you recover, sometimes you lose the ability to talk, sometimes you have problems walking uh, and so on. Um, But the brain often finds a way to sort of rewire itself in those cases. And some of the lobotomy cases clearly, while they, they had great defects after the operation, some of the other things that had haunted them before the operation had diminished or gone away. And one of the problems in treating mental illness is that our guideposts about what constitutes improvement are very hard to draw. And in this case, people took these changes, for example, no longer, you still had delusions and hallucinations, but you couldn't focus on them very carefully anymore because of the brain damage. Uh, So that was seen as a positive. Uh, anything to save people from the back wards, uh, Freeman thought. So in 1950, when there were about a half million patients in America's state and county mental hospitals, um, about a half of them had been there for 16 years or more. So this was a pretty dreadful fate. And I think Freeman saw himself as rescuing these patients. I see him as a moral monster. He operated on children, for example, as young as four years of age. And he said because children's brains were still developing, he could damage them more. It did become controversial, but Harvard, Yale, Columbia, they all had major lobotomy programs into the 1950s. 
So let, let's think about the legacies of this then, because with all of the controversy, all of the skepticism, really from the beginning in 1935, it made its way into pop culture, into movies. Freeman performed a lobotomy on live television. Why then, Andrew, do we see the demise of lobotomies over this time? So many people think there was a very simple answer to that question. In 1954, the first antipsychotic drug, Thorazine, hit the market. And very quickly, by 1956, 2 million patients had been prescribed. So some people thought, well, we had a much better treatment that looked much more like what regular doctors did treating other diseases. Uh, and there's some truth to that. But if you actually track things, you'll see that lobotomy, first of all, Thorazine was described as a chemical lobotomy when it was first introduced. And secondly, lobotomies persisted long past 1954. They were beginning to decline. And I think one of the reasons for that was a generational change. The worst examples of what lobotomy did to people ended up on the back wards of mental hospitals. They couldn't be released because they were so badly damaged. And newly trained psychiatrists, those were the patients they saw. And they said to themselves, God, we can't do this anymore. And so as the older generation died off, so too did lobotomy. It was still not heavily criticized really until the 1960s. And you're absolutely right. One of the seminal moments, I think, and one of the things that damaged the image of ECT, electroshock therapy, was the film One Flew Over the Cooker's Nest. And Jack Nicholson getting zapped with ECTs. And then finally, when that doesn't suffice to control him and tame him, he's given a lobotomy. And that fixed in the public mind the idea that this had been one colossal mistake. So I think it's partly generational, partly the emergence of new forms of treatment, uh, and partly the accumulation of the worst examples of what this operation did to people. There are so many layers to this, but I'm curious about that generational change that you mentioned, because not only do we see a generational change in who's performing procedures, how we think about that, but we also have greater awareness of mental illness. In fact, we're in May, which is now known as Mental Health Awareness Month. Thinking about your book, Andrew, what would you say are one or two key points that you want listeners to know about this unending quest to really treat mental illness? Well, I think one, th one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that these desperate remedies, as I call them, were disproportionately visited on women. Roughly speaking, men slightly outnumber women in mental hospitals, but about two thirds of the lobotomies were performed on women. So that's quite striking. In terms of what you take away, first of all, mental illness on top of the suffering that it generates by its very nature is greeted with stigma and loathing by the larger society. And so that's an additional layer of problem that has been extraordinarily difficult to eradicate. We're frightened by mental illness. It puzzles us. We can't make sense of it. It seems these people have left our common sense world for something else. The other thing I would say is that, and I include here the most modern treatments, um, are vastly oversold 
all of these things come with severe side effects. So what I would like to see uh, American psychiatry has moved in the last 40 years in an almost exclusively biological direction. And I think mental illness is a multidimensional problem. And we know in terms of treating patients that dealing with the social problems, psychological problems that mental illness brings in its train is something we should be paying much more attention to than we are. And as ordinary citizens, being a bit kinder, a bit less prone to rejecting the mentally ill. And if it's not your family or you yourself, certainly people you know are very much affected by these terrible problems. Andrew Scull is Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Science Studies at the University of California, San Diego. He's author of the upcoming book, Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness. Andrew, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you for having me on. When we come back, why the dream of a universal neutral language failed and who's still keeping Esperanto alive. Plus how Napster still influences the music industry two decades after its demise. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week on the show, a look at three innovations that were primed to change our world, but didn't. Chester, don't you? Me mirrors, Chester, very good to the Chiak from Havas Kuritzbevon. The aspecto is the scripona. Fresh pure air or a vivigous man. See, I oculo is the sclerai. Dum the last time, three knock time, yes, every dome. Sans auditondron. Today, our world is a complex patchwork of over 7,000 languages. But what if we had one universal way to communicate with all people? That was the goal of the constructed language, Esperanto. You're hearing a young William Shatner in the 1966 horror film Incubus, performed entirely in Esperanto. It is Santis Jin, the Samsango, Samkoro, Sama Animo. So why didn't Esperanto succeed? Erica Okrent is a linguist and author of the book In the Land of Invented Languages, Adventures in Linguistic Creativity, Madness, and Genius. Erica, welcome to Disrupted. 
Thank you for having me. I want us today to talk about Esperanto because it was created during a time when people were searching for a way to communicate and for something to bind them together. Share with our listeners how that language was first conceived and how it connected to the political environment at the time. Well, it was invented by Ludwig Zamenhof, who lived in Bialystok, which was a place with many ethnicities and not of them, not all of them getting along very well. And people spoke various languages. They spoke Russian, they spoke Polish, they spoke Yiddish, there were German speakers. And it started to seem to him that the origin of the strife or the problems was this mix of languages, that this inability of people to understand each other. So he decided to invent a language that would sort of combine various languages together in a way that made it very easy to learn. There were no irregular verbs and no special declensions and things you had to learn. You had to learn some roots and a few endings and you put them together and you're up and running and the world can communicate. And he thought this would help. This would help bring peace. It sounds so simple. We want people to speak a common language so that they can bond and be able to not just speak together, but really connect with one another to create a language that's easier for people to learn. That doesn't sound controversial. And yet so much of the opposition was embedded into the context of who he was as a creator and what he represented. Why was there opposition to Zamenhof, but also to creating this common unifying language? Well, at the time, other people were doing this too. Zamenhof was not the first to think of it. It was kind of a trend in this second half of the 19th century, there was the railroads and there was the telegraph. People were able to communicate more than ever before. And oh, they run into this wall of language. Uh, So other people were trying too, but they weren't taking off. And everybody thought, oh, it's because of something about the language, the word roots they chose, or the endings they chose weren't simple enough, or the, the letters they're using or the diacritics they're using. There were lots of reasons to think, oh, this language is not good. Let me do a better one. So he stepped into a, you know, a, a, a competitive uh, market where people thought, oh, no, we need the best one so we can communicate scientific ideas and, and have um, you know, general high-level discussion. But he didn't take that approach. His approach was not Uh, was more, let's just build a community. So it wasn't, my language is the best because it has the best features. It was, here is a list of roots and a list of endings. You could put it in a a sort of a pen pal letter, send it out, and they'll figure out what you've written, and then they can use it and write something back to you. and, And that's all you need. Start using it. I want to dig more into the the hallmarks of the language because you mentioned that it was easier for people to pick up. And because there are no native speakers of the language, there's the opportunity to be more cognizant of and responsive to the challenges that many people face in learning a new language or doing something different. What are the other pieces of this language that made it easier to learn, but in turn, easier for people to grasp? The ironic thing is that the, it it seems like it, you're floating above uh, cultures and habits if you do this. But what happened is that it 
became a culture and a habit. So once people started writing these letters to each other, then they'd said, oh, let's meet up. And they started having congresses where they put on plays and did poetry readings and comedy routines and all of this in Esperanto. And it became a culture and a, a, a thing that you knew the funny expressions and the funny words, but you were, but everyone was invited and that, that was different. And people were thrilled to have newcomers. But this idea of being able to float above culture um, was, it didn't work out because when people get together and start communicating, they form a culture. And they did that with Esperanto too. You mentioned before that it was a somewhat crowded space in terms of people who were creating new languages, advocating for this new way to connect and communicate. And in your book, you say that there were over 200 languages created between 1880 and the start of the Second World War. What's interesting, Erica, is that many of those other languages fail. They fail to catch on, fail to create a community, as you said, to sort of bind people together. What is it about Esperanto that allowed it to continue its growth and to really become in many ways the exemplar of creating a new language to bring people together? Well, yes, those, you know, how many of those have you heard of? <laughs> and that impulse to make the best one, to have it arrange the best features and have all the the proper forms that would make it the most learnable or the most easily too easy to explain um, difficult concepts and those things, it turned out didn't really matter that much. That's not what people are looking for when they're thinking about learning a new language. When people want to learn a new language, and this is true of natural languages, any language, it's because you want to join the people who are speaking that language. And so Zamenhof's focus on the community gave it a jump on the ones that were arguably more logical or more fairer balance of the roots that they chose from the different languages. It was the, here you go, take it and run with it. And that was another big difference is that he didn't try to be controlling once it was out there. And most of these other language inventors very much did. And um, Zamenhof wasn't, didn't hold the reins that tightly. He said, here, do what you will with it. And, it. and it went from there. So much of the promise of Esperanto and the attractiveness of it seems to be not so much about language and the canons of language, but also about Zamenhof and his sort of vision what was the vision or what was the sort of value proposition built into we are creating this space with intentionality that can be inclusive of people who have been pushed out or overlooked in other spaces? Yeah, it had a, the name, the interna ideo, the internal idea, which was a, a general peace and love and harmony between everyone in the world. Um, the ability to see everyone as part of the human race. And he had various approaches to this idea. And the people who ended up going with Esperanto were attracted to that idea. So there was definitely a type who was attracted to the idea of Esperanto, picked up the letter and started doing it and went to the Congresses and met other people who were, oh, like kind of like them. And they formed a community because they had 
a similar interest based on that rather than we're going to make a scientific journal with this language that everyone can learn and will spread our ideas. But that also meant that the community was ridiculed. They were seen as eccentrics and dreamers and utopians. And for a while, that was kind of in fashion to be that way. But by the, by the end of the Second World War, that was seen as completely naive. This is not going to do anything. This is not going to bring peace to the world. And the popularity of invented languages really fell off. That By then, it was something that only a complete eccentric would do. But they kept on doing it. And Esperanto chugged along decade after decade, and it's, it's still going on. So what was it then about World War II as a, a global event or about sort of the outcome of that after the war that led to this collapse? What was that change between the tremendous promise of Esperanto, of building community, culture, and identity around language, to, as you say, you know, it collapses and really trails off from its initial roots? The idea that language is the cause of strife became, obviously it's not. You can have people who speak the same language, people in the same nation who have conflict with each other, and it's not caused by the lack of understanding based on language differences. But also it was this idea that it's possible to remake society that was People were very optimistic about that at the beginning of the 20th century, and people were remaking society. They were forming new economic systems and forming new everything. Um, And why not language too? Let's remake that. And by the second half of the 20th century, it was clear that wasn't a great idea and didn't always work out well. Esperanto got lumped into that. Okay, the, the society remakers are over their skis. They they shouldn't be doing that. You know, there's also this fear of when you see people come into power and influence whose entire approach is, we need to remake society because there are people in our current society who shouldn't be there, how that kind of notion can really undermine basic respect for humanity. And what's so interesting, thinking about the the legacy of Esperanto, that path, that connection to these world events, is that Esperanto didn't become the universally spoken language across the world. But you can see roots of that approach in so many other spaces and even the ways in which English has become a dominant language. In spite of demographics around the world, English is the language that we use to communicate in business, in global affairs. What would you say then about English's dominance on the global stage And do you think it actually fulfills some of Zamenhof's vision for bringing people together, even if Esperanto wasn't the language that made that happen? In a way, it does in that people who do not speak each other's native languages will speak English. So at, you know, at a European Commission meeting where nobody has English as their native language, they'll they'll speak English with each other and it serves as as a tool. The problem is, and this is what the Esperanto speakers today um, point out often is that the power imbalance when it is someone's native language, that's what Esperanto aimed to overcome. And that's what the Esperanto speakers today would say, no, 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 English is not doing what Esperanto aimed to do because it's not 
fair. But, you know, it is the language. You, if you want to do something practical, you got to learn a practical language. And often Esperanto speakers, people think, oh, Esperanto is so, so dead and it's a, a robot language. It doesn't have any culture. It doesn't have all this history. It's bland, but it's really, nobody is more into every kind of cultural every <laughs> thing than an Esperanto speaker. And an Esperanto speaker will go to Spain for an Esperanto Congress and they'll learn Basque for their trip to Spain. That's the kind of thing that Esperanto speakers do. And they don't want Esperanto to stamp that out. They want to make it another place where people can meet on fair ground. Listening to you, there is a sense of cultural humility, but also cultural curiosity. Thinking about where we are in the world today, thinking about Esperanto as, as creating communities that continue to flourish and people continue to meet. I wonder what you should, you would say we should expect from the future of the language of Esperanto or maybe the future of languages in general. Well, I think Esperanto will continue. It will it, it it won't die out and it won't become the world language. It's a thing that a certain type of person is attracted to and it's much easier now for them to find it and people who think that's cool are going to keep doing that and um, will probably stay about the same. And, you know, English has in the meantime taken over and people think, you know, well, what's the future of English? Will, will it last for, will this rain last forever? And nobody knows for sure, but English too takes over and it spreads around, but it also fractures. So when you have a language that that's being used in various places, in various situations, people form communities within that language that can then kind of shoot off and form their own way. There, you know, people talk about there's Singapore English and there's there's various Englishes around the world. And so even if you have one common language, a global language, within that language, you get you get fracturing that um, who knows which directions that will take and how fractured they will get. That's what happened to Latin and it could happen to English too. Erica Okrent is a linguist and author of the book In the Land of Invented Languages, Adventures in Linguistic Creativity, Madness and Genius. Erica, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. After the break, a technology reporter on the downfall of the music sharing site Napster and its continued impact on the music industry. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we've been looking at the history of three failed social and technological disruptions and the ways that these failures continue to influence our world. Today, the music industry is dominated by streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Music. But back in the early 2000s, record labels relied on the sale of records and CDs to generate revenue. That's why the rise of music-sharing startup Napster back in 1999 created a credible risk to the entire industry. 
Our next guest chronicles the story of Napster in his book, All the Rave, The Rise and Fall of Sean Fanning's Napster. Joseph Min is also technology reporter for The Washington Post. Joseph, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. You know, I want to talk about Napster because your book looks at the trajectory of Napster as this peer-to-peer music sharing service. Why was it groundbreaking to even think of peer-to-peer music sharing? Napster combined a couple of different technologies, which made it super powerful. This was right at, at, at the beginning of the personal computer revolution, I guess, when it was finally in everybody's home and when music was stripped down to a, a compressed MP3 format, even if you didn't have a great connection, that was enough to get the songs on your computer. So Napster became one of the fastest growing brands in history uh, because it was completely free. Uh, you downloaded the program and it let you search everybody else who was on Napster, all of their record collections, their music collections that they elected to share. But the default was set to share if you were using Napster. So it was a very powerful indicator of the importance of network effects. The more people that joined, the better it was. So you could find really, really obscure tracks in not too long, including unreleased tracks and things that shouldn't have been out there at all. The big downside, of course, was that this was running roughshod over copyright law because nobody was getting any money. And in fact, the record labels would argue vociferously that it was cutting into their sales, though um, the data is kind of murky on that. But it, it exposed people to music that they never would have heard before, and it opened their eyes to the potential for technology. You know, as a a lifelong music fan and someone who's old enough to remember when peer-to-peer sharing meant these really poor quality cassette tapes that we would record from the radio and, you know, hope we could stop it before people started talking, this really revolutionized how people accessed music, but also how we thought about music and that sort of communal space. But what you say about your book is that you weren't even covering Napster at the time of that kind of downfall. What inspired you to write this particular book? Well, what happened is while Napster was was going, I got introduced to one of one of the kids that was that had moved out here to San Francisco from Boston and had uh, actually designed the servers. And he was speaking to me off the record, and he said that you know, Napster's got a lot of attention, and I can't talk officially about this, so don't quote me on anything, but the stuff behind the scenes, what's going on with the struggle for for control of Napster inside and the incompetence of the, of the leadership there is, is way more interesting than the stuff you're reading in the papers. And so I kept in touch with him. And when I started working on a, a, a potential book, knowing that Napster was probably doomed and he would be free to talk because he wouldn't be working there anymore. And with Napster, it was a, a bunch of things at once. It explained the, the rocket ship of technology development and how Silicon Valley could jumpstart it. All the money sloshing around Silicon Valley and the dot-com, dot-com boom, which is when this was, could jumpstart that, but also corrupt it. Uh, and that's, that's what happened in this case. One of the persistent challenges within the music industry centers on control. And that was key for Napster because it faced a number of lawsuits alleging copyright infringement. Walk us through, Joseph, how such a small company that seems so inexperienced in this space, really, it sounds like, changed music and the recording industry and this issue of power and profit. 
It, it's really interesting because it was a small company. It never sold shares to the public, and and it did completely change the tra- trajectory of of the music industry. And you know, through a series of dominoes, got us to where we are today. And you know, it was small, but it was also very uh, disingenuous. The initial strategy of their first full time CEO, Eileen Richardson, was as she told me to stay under the radar and play dumb. It was spreading on college campuses super fast by word of mouth. And they didn't want any press at first, because if they if they got the press, then um, it would grow faster, but it would get on the record labels uh, radar and then they would and they would sue because what they were doing was was obviously facilitating massive copyright infringement by, you know, according to the record industry, the greatest theft of intellectual property in the history of the world. But the idea was to spread quickly before people caught on to what was happening because once they caught on to what was happening, uh, they would sue uh, and they might get a preliminary injunction and stop it entirely. The idea was that if they got big enough, then they might get enough leverage to negotiate some kind of deal with the record industry. And this is one of the big secrets that people didn't understand. So the masses loved Napster as as a revolution and as a screw you to the record industry, which was pretty obnoxious. They were famous for not paying their own bands for 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 you know they they were they hoarded the money the bands would wind up in debt to the labels it was a it's a terrible system uh and that helped napster be more popular it's also true that the like the greed of the labels you know they were poached many many times by startups in silicon valley and bigger companies in silicon valley to unleash digital music at a reasonable cost. And they wouldn't do it because they knew that people would still march down to Tower Records and plunk down $15 for a a record or $20 for a CD when all they wanted was one song. So it worked for them, but that made them vulnerable to this kind of of attack. Now, that was the initial plan was was to get so big that even though Napster was essentially extorting the labels they would be willing to pay a billion or two billion dollars because napster had the direct connections to the consumers and knew the consumers buying habits so they could see if somebody downloaded metallica the next thing they would probably do or the odds are very good is they'd be receptive to to downloading acdc and here's their email address so you can tell them if a new album was dropping so it would be super powerful if they got into bed with the record labels even though the people that they were reaching thought that they were, you know, revolutionary and fundamentally opposed to they would never sell out and it was all about liberating the music from the evil labels. In fact, they were they were trying to sell out from day one. I mean, it sounds like from behind the scenes there was a lot of conspiring happening across. There was a lot of consideration about who could benefit from this. And I think Sean Fanning often gets portrayed as this Robin Hood of sorts, who is creating an opportunity for people to have access to, you know, I keep thinking of a tribe called Quest and Q-Tip saying in this song, record company people are shady, but there was a lot of shadiness happening here. When you think, Joseph, of the research that you did for this book, for the story, the complete story you were able to tell, what would you say is the most surprising discovery that you had here or one that you think more people need to pay attention to? Well, there's stuff like that on a human level and on a technological level and on on the money level. It's hard to pick one. I mean, I think you know one of the reasons I wrote the book is that the misperceptions of what Napster was all about were so huge. On a human level, it's hard to get past the fact that everybody thought this likable 19-year-old Sean Fanning on the cover 
of Time Magazine and like the first cool hacker, the first hacker that many people would want to be like, the widespread perception that he was was that he was in charge, and he was never in charge. From the moment Napster Inc. was incorporated, his uncle John Fanning kept seventy percent of the company. But John Fanning had, you know, what I would politely call a checkered past in terms of of of, of his business deals, unpaid debts at the time. He uh, he failed to pay some of his employees at a previous startup. He was really a hustler, and and not in the not in the nicest sense of the word. And when they came out to Silicon Valley, a lot of very smart people looked at the Napster business plan and they looked at the uncle and they said, well, I can handle one of these. You know, the fact that this may very well be illegal will certainly be sued. I could handle that. I could try and make a deal with that. Or I could handle the over-involved uncle, but I can't handle both. And as a result, they wound up with lower quality venture capital and they wound up with lower quality executive leadership. So one of the amazing things to me about the whole story is that the kids are good guys. The the the, the technical whiz, the the visionary guy, uh and and the business head Sean Parker who went on to be quite some fame and fortune. It was the it was the professionals that screwed everything up. That took this amazing thing and just kind of went crazy and 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 blew it. And it, it's and the, with the ramifications of that, you know, playing out through the rampant piracy, through the rise of Apple's legitimate paid, you know, music service, the iTunes Music Store, which only came about because the record labels were facing certain death at the hands of Napster. All that comes from this wild careening thing, where an uncle cut a seventy thirty deal with his nephew. But it brings us to where we are today, where artists are reclaiming their power in these spaces where they are saying, we want to control not just our art, but who has access to it and who profits from it. And I'm thinking here of, you know, NFTs, these non-fungible tokens that we're seeing artists, not just in music, but also in, in paintings and other creative spaces saying, this is a way for us to control the release of our music. Do you think that NFTs have the potential to become Napster 2.0 in terms of disrupting that model of control? Or do you think it can really shift the power dynamics in the recording industry overall? Well, that's interesting. First, before we get to NFTs, I would say that the the, the revolution in artist control is very exciting. Uh, there are other services where artists develop sort of personal relation, one-on-one connection with their fans, which wasn't really possible before. And they can raise money, they they can give bonus performances to individuals. And as piracy has gone rampant, there's a lot more priority. Uh, and maybe the only way to make a good living is with live performances. So they have gotten more and more uh, important. And then the digital age has helped spread photos and bootlegs and, and whatever of these performances. And it's really become sort of a unifying experience. On the on the question of NFTs and this other sort of original content, first of all, I mean NFTs, generally speaking, have no intrinsic value. I think that's very important for people to realize because a lot of this is tulip mania, a lot of this is pyramid schemey. There are multiple crashes. There are no protections for investing in this sort of a thing. If it's an artwork that brings brings you pleasure, then sure, you know it's one way to to go by it. But there's also not a direct line to the original creators. There are many F- NFTs that are being sold that are copies of digital art made by somebody else, 
Um, so there, there are a lot of complications there. I don't know how the NFT biz is going to play out in music, but it's, it's another way that I guess some artists would be able to monetize their creation. And, and to that extent, it's a good thing. As we come to a close of our time, I want to think about the legacies of Napster. So I mentioned, you know, Napster in its original configuration, and now today it is still existing in a different format as a paid online music service. What would you say, Joseph, is, is the biggest takeaway that we should learn from the historical trajectory of Napster, but how it connects to all the layers that you investigate in your book? Well, Nap one of Napster's most valuable assets when it was forced into bankruptcy after after the record industry completely clobbered it was the brand and so it's the brand that lives on but it has no connection beyond the sort of emotional and evocative name for anybody who's around at the time to uh to the original folks uh i think it's the the power of of young people and outsiders to harness technology to drive innovation and get it into the hands of of millions and millions of people and you know there's there's that's a wonderful thing a less wonderful thing is sort of the business lesson that you can be extraordinarily successful even by completely ignoring the law if you get enough people behind you and it didn't actually bring millions of dollars to the people at napster but that has been the strategy at other companies such as uber and airbnb that flouted the laws at least for a time but became so popular that they had that sort of leverage that Napster was hoping to get and and take advantage of. And, and I guess the last takeaway would be the digital music that we enjoy now in various forms. That was all all because of these few innovators and the the rocket fuel that Silicon Valley provides. Joseph Min is tech reporter for the Washington Post. He's author of All the Rave: The Rise and Fall of Sean Fanning's Napster. Joseph, thank you for joining us. Thanks for your interest. I appreciate it. You can find links to the work of all of our guests by visiting our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. This episode was produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Talarski. The show is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum and Emily Cherish. Our interns are Taylor Doyle and Jacob Gannon. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.